artist and organizer Bridget Chappelle talks through the experiments, research, and activities that have formed their exhibition No Comment, with particular attention paid toward their investigations into the science of phase cancellation as bringing forward an acoustic insurrection through phase cancelling the cops. Chappelle presents anti-police sound technologies through material research together with theoretical articulations of ungovernable space, tactical defense and silence as a means of political enunciation. No comment will be presented at Blindside, Melbourne from March 17th to April 3rd, 2021. The project No Comment has... I guess it's a, a an idea that's taken multiple forms and it's kind of culminating in this exhibition now, which is a collection of studio projects and experiments that I've taken of developing a series of experimental sound technologies to harness the principles of phase cancellation that most people would be familiar with from noise cancelling headphones. Um, to try and apply that on a larger scale. So instead of being encased in headphones, ideally it's something like a sound system um, that has the capacity to block out um, specific sounds that we've identified that we don't want to hear for various political reasons. Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, ambitious technologically. Uh, it's definitely totally beyond my realm as a sound engineer. <laughs> but the idea was to kind of um, develop a series of just like beta prototypes, basically, uh, kind of mm, inspired by, say, like open source software where someone builds a prototype and then makes all of their blueprints available to other people and invites other people to build on that, expand on it, improve it etc etc um so maybe by the time we get to no comment version you know like 13.2 we'll actually be able to aim a sound system at a police siren um and not hear it and of course like this all begs the question like why would you want to do that Bridget the question that a lot of people first ask me is why would you want to cancel police sirens when police sirens are actually quite useful for identifying when the cops are coming. And yeah, I totally agree. Like it seems a little bit um, impractical on a lot of levels. I suppose what I was interested in was uh, challenging the space that sirens take up in our, in our lives in that sirens, we kind of take for granted the, um, the narrative that we allow them to carve in our minds of what's deemed an emergency, who has the power to declare something worthy of intervention by the authorities. It kind of initially came from actually investigating this uh, so-called terror alert system that was installed in the Melbourne CBD, which is a network of 200 fixed sirens that you can see if you look up in the CBD, they're usually mounted on lampposts and things like that. The idea there was that they could be let off if there was a class three emergency. So yeah, something like a hostage situation or a catastrophic weather event or something like that. And 
I suppose I got to thinking, well, you know, would they let off those sirens, say, when they started bulldozing trees at Japarong or something else that many other communities in Victoria would consider a catastrophic emergency? So I liked the idea of kind of challenging who has, yeah, who holds the reins over those narratives. Sirens are very imperative. They stir something in you physiologically as soon as you hear them. You go into this kind of tense mode when you hear them. And I, yeah, I suppose I just didn't like the idea of cops having a monopoly on that. <laughs> Initially, of course, at first it was frustrating not being able to run the exhibition uh, last March as planned. But as I said, the exhibition is just the latest kind of iteration of this um, strand of thought that I've had around phase cancelling the cops. And I think that the, the dialogue around it has only kind of deepened in the last year. What we saw happen at the BLM protests last year where long-range acoustic devices which we knew were owned by most police forces in Australia were kind of used in public for the first time against protesters in Warang or Sydney. You know, it kind of brought in this very corporal and urgent understanding of, of yeah, what, what risk these, these weapons pose, even though they're, they're so widespread they hadn't been used yet in Australia uh, to anyone's knowledge. I can only imagine how stoked the cops were to finally get to trot them out against protesters. And it kind of feels like a bit of a watershed moment, um, wondering if this just means that they're going to be brought out more and more frequently now that they've set their own precedent for it. One of the paces that I developed for the exhibition and hopefully for other applications was this kind of portable um, phase cancelling device that was intended to be used explicitly at protests against long-range acoustic devices. A lot of it was based on just like items that you could kind of uh, find anywhere. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe yeah, if you've been to a protest before, you've come across uh, the sound system in a wheelie bin idea, um, yeah, where you put the the sound system in a wheelie bin and you cut a hole in it so that you can have the speaker protruding and then you can just wheel it around for the march. And I liked the idea of kind of using some of the offcuts from that design. Uh, so then using the bin lid, which is quite conveniently shaped in this concave or convex, you know, shape, depending which way you face it out, which is actually really useful for dispersing sound waves. And then, mounting a microphone on top of that to uh, pick up incoming sound waves and then having a diaphragm positioned on that to send the kind of mirror the sound waves and send them back out, which is the basic premise of phase cancellation. Yeah, so something like that I, I saw as becoming, yeah, very, very kind of relevant and hopefully practical beyond the realm of just, you know, looking at it in, in, in a gallery. 
And it was quite interesting to watch sound engineers probably of similar persuasions develop similar kinds of technology in the United States. During the protests last year, I saw at least one other prototype of a phase-canceling protest device that people could take out with them to try and safeguard themselves and their community against long-range acoustic devices or LRADs. She filmed them going back into their fucking government car, putting their paint back in their boot of their government car, man. That has a lot to fucking answer for, man. A lot. My own introduction to sonic weapons was in the West Bank uh, during the Second Intifada. I was there in Palestine for about a year. And it was super common that the Israeli army would be using sound cannons and also sound grenades against protesters. Sound grenades were usually the first thing that were kind of brought out by the army in like protest situations. They create this like huge disorienting sound for a second so that you kind of have to like stop what you're doing, cover your ears, like reorient. And there was actually one protest that I went to uh, in a village where, you know, and they had a, a very strong protest culture there and they kind of would come up with themes for different rallies and protests. And on that particular protest, they said, today we're going to harvest all of the sound grenades that have been thrown at us today. It was during the season of what would normally be the village's olive harvest, but they couldn't access their own olive fields because of the separation wall. So they kind of did this tongue in cheek sound grenade harvest instead. And so everyone made a point of collecting all the sound grenades that were thrown at us that day, you know, after they'd cooled down and you could actually pick them up. And we ended up with this absolutely enormous pile of them. And like still to this day, when I hear loud, kind of loud bang noises, I, I jump and it's like I'm transported back there for a second. Yeah, so this stuff, it, it's not new. Um, and, and certainly having spent time in Palestine, which is just treated as a complete testing ground for developing weaponry, probably encoded something in me relatively early about uh, how sound can be used in these situations of so-called crowd control and protests and things like that. So yeah, it's really, it's no surprise that it's happening in Australia now. Um, I was kind of holding my breath to see when we would actually see the LRADs used for the first time. Um, so it was really sad, but no surprise to see them, yeah, finally wheeled out um, last year. Shoot. 
It's funny. I don't hold anyone's anyone else's art to these um, kind of standards or criteria, but my own stuff, I always want it to have like a dual function at least. Like I want it to do more than like provide commentary on something or I want it to like have some kind of material application, if that makes sense. Um, and obviously, you know, we could get into like a huge discussion around, I don't know, the the real world implications of art that does just provide commentary anyway. But yeah, I I really wanted to make something that did something, I guess. <laughs> um, and definitely, I think the idea of eradicating police sirens uh, was more inspired by these modes of thinking around temporary autonomous zones and things like that, creating these kind of fleeting spaces where I don't know, all of the rules of engagement are suspended. I know that there's been many times in my life when I've stopped doing what I'm doing because I heard police sirens. Like maybe I'm engaged in something where I'm actually like, you know, I, I'm, you know, maybe I've got someone watching for me for for cop cars or like, you know, I, I stop in the middle of something because I hear sirens and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I'm going <laughs> to stop what I'm doing right now so I don't get caught. And then it's kind of like, oh, but what if that moment just lasted forever? What if the police siren never came? What if we didn't have the the fear of the police? How would we move and organize if that just didn't exist? Now, of course, I know in the real world, when you remove the police siren, you don't remove the police. So I suppose that's kind of more the, yeah, that's more some kind of like speculative utopic end of what I was trying to access there and I think yeah we're, we're certainly allowed to kind of daydream in that way and I like the idea that even if the exhibition just invites people to imagine a briefly liberated zone where you know cops can't enter there sonically or otherwise but yeah definitely I was really interested in finding ways to also use the technology to actively protect my community in, in protest situations and things like that. The gallery is such a simulated environment, hey, but I think that um, it is really useful as just providing a space to have these conversations and present ideas. Um, yeah, definitely. I don't want the gallery to be the final resting place of, of the whole thing. Yeah, definitely one of the kind of the centerpiece of the works is this huge sound system, which ideally is tuned to focus on a specific point and cancel out sound from, from it. And the idea is that once that the exhibition has been uninstalled is that that sound system um, is then rebuilt to take to protests and things like that. Yeah, so there's definitely, there'll be chapters of it after the exhibition as well. Yeah, I think the gallery is like, a, it serves as a really useful kind of platform for, yeah, showcasing the ideas, continuing the conversations and, as I said before, making the blueprints available of what it is and how I've kind of envisioned it working on a technical level. I'm really hoping that 
people that are actual engineers and physicists come to the exhibition and can kind of build on my fairly scrappy <laughs> ideas about how it all works on, on a scientific level. Because um, I just think that these kinds of technologies have been developed by you know, weapons manufacturers and governments for decades. And there's no reason why people like ourselves can't start developing our own prototypes as well. And I think it's really important that it's not as asymmetrical as it has been. My yearning for active silence probably comes as much as anything from just, I'm an incredibly sound sensitive person myself. I don't know if all sound artists are like this, but I'm, I'm an absolute baby with sound, which is funny if you listen to the music that I make. But if, if it's something that's just happening to me, oh my God, <laughs> I go to pieces. <laughs> so it's totally possible that the whole thing just came out of me just fucking hating the sound of sirens because I can't think properly when I hear them. Uh, well, yeah, as I say, I think it's there's a lot of um, fertility or potency in a space that we've claimed for ourselves and kind of like cleared the table sonically of, of what's, you know, this acoustic ecology that we're always surrounded by um, and especially in urban environments sirens play a heavy role in that and what they're contributing to that ecology is a sense of dread and fear and significantly self-policing I think I mean I think something one of the main roles that I see sirens serving is the cops don't even have to arrive um, to get you to toe the line as a citizen all they have to do is turn on the siren and like I was talking about before maybe you just stop what you're doing because you hear the siren and so even if we kind of take control of that space and remove that element and so yeah we have then we have silence but it's not a passive space it's, it's something that we've kind of like actively curated for ourselves but of course active silence is <laughs> active silence is probably quite an apt description of how most police operations take place you know like most of the time they're not going to let you know that they're coming or that they're operating. Um, they're not so good to use a siren to let you know about that. Victoria Police launched this new, what I dubbed a 24 hour snitch line. I think it was last year actually. Um, and they kind of promoted it with all of these billboards everywhere in Melbourne saying for when you need us, but not the sirens. And the idea was that, yeah, there was this police number that you could call if you wanted the cops to come, but you didn't want to call triple zero and you didn't want them to arrive with, you know, like lights flashing and sirens blaring. The idea is that you wanted them to be able to creep in and uh, make their presence known on their own terms instead. So yeah, I, I guess everyone on every side of the equation um, is aware of the power of active silence. But again, I suppose, yeah, for me, I was just interested in defining it and of seeing how 
we can use it because obviously the cops are already quite across how to use it themselves. It's such an open invitation for collusion, for sure. One of the big things about where all of this comes from is that like, it is quite a specific um, set of politics and quite a specific community that um, the whole project has come out of. And it kind of assumes that the audience member comes from you know, a place of having engaged in direct action and it's assuming that you already hate the police. It's assuming that you also want to find safe spaces away from the police and find ways to kind of um, weaponize those safe spaces actively against the police. Like it's, it's, it's very specific. It assumes a lot about you, I think. But it's also, it's intended to invite people to join those communities like I, I didn't go to art school and I can kind of fake my way through um, some of those worlds, but I, I certainly find a lot of the art world quite difficult to access sometimes as an outsider. Yeah, and, and then I kind of forget that maybe for people on the outside of say, like the activist world or other practices that have informed this work, maybe those worlds seem hard to access as well. So maybe this, this project is meant to be a bit of an open invitation to transcend um, and to collude with us on those fronts. She filmed them going back into their fucking government car, putting their paint back in their boot of their government car, man. That have a lot to fucking answer. So Thomas, uh, my curator and I, put together um, a group of fellow activists and artists uh, from Melbourne to, it was a working group essentially, uh, to kind of develop a, a curriculum and hopefully a, a set of active, you know, engagements inspired by the politics of the work. Our first session was it was kind of mortifying for me. It was a, just a reading group where everyone was reading my essay, <laughs> one of my essays that I'd written, which, yeah, I have to say is really terrifying to have a room full of people that you respect dissecting your own writing. Um, but I got a lot out of it and that was really useful. But I was really stoked when in the second session we moved on to, yeah, trying some kind of real world ex like sound experiments. Um, that group, that session was led by Jahan Rezenkhalu, who's yeah, a local sound artist who introduced us to a set of kind of sonic tactics used by football hooligans, um, where you would kind of like use the architecture of the city as yeah, like kind of playing it like instruments, but also to kind of like take up space sonically, send signals to other groups of people moving through the city engaged in the same kind of milieu. 
yeah and it was it just ended up being this really joyous kind of descent into total chaos of using Collingwood Yards as a giant orchestra, basically finding ways to kind of signal to one another where we were through reverb and echo and what kind of different sounds you could get out of different objects, taking apart a kind of building site uh, to then like bash it on other things, but still with a kind of focused outcome. That was really, really revealing for everybody. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so we'll be starting up no comment together again in the lead up to the exhibition this time. And yeah, hopefully it can become a working group that continues afterwards as well with specific goals and outcomes. It was really important for it to be as collectivized as possible. And it still is. Um, I think that, yeah, something that Thomas and I have both found is just that the, the idea of the project seemed to capture people's attention and imagination. Like both of us would be approached by people that we knew and didn't know at say raves and other events, just going, Oh, I've heard about this sound system that you're building that, you know, destroys police sirens. And it's like, okay, well, I, it doesn't destroy police sirens yet, but um, maybe if we get enough people on board and keep working on it, maybe we ultimately can. <laughs> yeah. Something that I come back to a lot is even though it's kind of, it, it's fun to really um, position ourselves on this access axis of us versus cops which is a very kind of basic duality it's like and I think that kind of being so unnuanced is a real luxury that we shouldn't always allow ourselves with any kind of political thinking we all have the potential to police each other and we have the potential to enact surveillance and control on one another And, you know, there's this kind of like old um, activist slogan of killing the cop in your head, whether that's how you police yourself or how you police your own community. And it's something that I really thought about a lot during COVID as well, where everyone was kind of encouraged to, there was this insidious kind of idea that you should watch how people around you are following the restrictions which it just seems totally Soviet to me, you know, this kind of (laughs) this, it it was really sinister to see how we could kind of all start watching whether like, oh, I saw that, you know, such and such on the Instagram stories, it looks like they were hanging out with like more than five people or something like that. And it's really, that's how it starts. That's how we start policing each other. Um, So yeah, I mean, like not to sound like an old man, but I think like that cop free utopia really does have a lot to do also with like us getting offline and away from these kinds of technologies that probably, um, yeah, they, they benefit us less than they benefit people like Jeff Bezos. Yeah. I don't know how, how the cop free utopia sounds. I suppose that's why I'm so hell bent on trying to create these spaces. I know the moments that I find myself in where it feels liberated are generally quite fleeting. There are often things like raves or things like protests where it feels like whether it's for like a minute or a couple of hours or for like the the length of a night that 
we've kind of transcended somehow. And I know that they're usually times when I, I haven't had my phone out as well. <laughs> yeah. But what we can do right now is just kind of like create more of these moments. And then you start stitching those moments together. Yeah. Utopia is much easier to achieve when you stop worrying about it temporally. <laughs> yeah. When it's just something you can kind of like reach out and grab for a second, accept that, yeah, it needs to pass, but kind of, yeah, watch for the next moment when you can grab it again. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vegar for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au